Hi, I'm Atika. I belong to the Swinomish and Tulalip people. I'm a photographer and the creator of Project 562. And I'm Adrian. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, a scholar, and the writer behind the blog Native Appropriations. Welcome back to another episode of the All My Relations podcast. We are so grateful to have you with us today. Thank you to all of our relations for joining us on this journey. You have made our hearts so full with your comments, sharing, and liking. Thank you. We love you so much. Yeah, the response to the podcast has been so incredible and overwhelming in the best ways. Um, We're so grateful for all of you who have listened and let us know um, what it's meant to hear these conversations uh, on a podcast. So apologies to folks that we made laugh and cry in awkward public places, but we're really, really grateful you're joining us on this journey. And Today, for our next episode, we have a really amazing and important conversation with Dr. Kim Tallbearer about Native American DNA. Mm-hmm. Can a DNA test make me Native American? <laughs> nah. <laughs> Why is this bothersome, Adrian? I mean, like Kim will talk in this episode about how she's been doing this since 2005 was the first time she wrote about Native American DNA. And so this is something we've been dealing with for a long time. But right now it feels incredibly relevant given what's going on with Elizabeth Warren and with all the conversations we're seeing online. And this is something that I talk about with my students a lot, like trying to break down what it means to be a Native person outside of these kind of biological ideas around race. And as a result, I have students who, like, send me DNA ads from TV and from subways or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I have this one that sticks out in my mind so much from one of my students uh, that she snapped in the subway in New York. And it's like this phenotypically older white guy. um, And in big red letters, it says, I am 11.7% Native American. And then underneath Mm -hmm. it, it says, you're more than meets the eye. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's this whole concept that like discovering Native DNA makes you like exotic and cool and different. And there's so many problems with that ad. Like we could spend an entire episode talking about that. But I, I also just think about the thousands and thousands of people who ride the New York City subway every day and are looking at that and the messages that they take Mm -hmm. away from that. And so that's why I think having this deep, important conversation about Native DNA and what that actually means and the dangers to our communities is so important. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me that they've done DNA tests and have found out that they're some percentage Native American. And I find it so like slightly insulting when it happens because, you know, when I think of my traditional understandings of what it means to belong to an indigenous community, I think of the kinship and the relationships and I think of um, standing with, as Kim and you talk about later on in this episode, uh, standing with my community. And that, that being from my place or 
belonging to these indigenous communities cannot be defined in a test tube. And we know that there's no such thing as a Native American anyways. So what are we, what is, the, what are they really saying to me when they say that? And, and in that way, when they say, make that statement to me, I feel like in some ways they're just sort of like reinserting in that moment their power over me that says that they don't have to know, that they don't, because they grew up going through this system, the K through 12 system, uh, the education system, the system that marginalizes and oppresses indigenous voices, they don't have to know that what they're saying is problematic. And so when they look at me and say that with a straight face, a part of me just sort of cringes on the inside. And then I have to decide whether or not in that moment I'm going to like take a deep breath and become an auntie and educate their um, spiritual deficiency or um, whether or not I'm just going to sort of like slough off. But either way, it's a microaggression (laughs) that definitely digs at me. And I think for our children, for our people coming up, for our kids, they deserve the right to hear from our scholars and to have the conversation that we're going to have today to arm them with the language necessary for for this current political climate. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think both of us are Dr. Kim Talbert fangirls. Um, we, when we were thinking about this podcast, she was one of the first people who popped up that we wanted to have as a guest. And so I think we're both really excited to get to share this conversation with you um, because her knowledge is amazing. She is so great to be around. She has fire tweets on Twitter all the time. And for me, it's just a real inspiration as a Mm -hmm. fellow Native woman navigating academia in really unapologetic and amazing ways. So she's so vivacious. She has beautiful red hair with a big blonde streak in the middle. And she has a boisterous (laughs) laugh. And she has a just like this incredible, big, beautiful brain that just you know, like I could sit and listen to Kim talk uh, for hours and hours and hours and hours and never get tired of anything she had to say because it just like one after the other takes my breath away. So I think y'all are in for a treat. So with that, we have a big important episode for you today. And we're going to dive right in with Dr. Kim Talbert to talk about this concept of Native American DNA the problems with ancestry DNA tests and the challenges they present for communities moving forward. We'll talk about Elizabeth Warren and then a little bit about the politics of research in indigenous communities and potential alternatives for thinking about kinship as markers of native belonging rather than biology. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. Kimberly Tallbearer is Sisseton Wapiton Oyate and also descendant from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. She's an associate professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, where she holds a Canadian research chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment. In 2013, she literally wrote the book on Native American DNA, entitled Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. 
Her indigenous science, technology, and society work recently turned to also address decolonial and indigenous sexualities, specifically on decolonizing the centering of monogamy that she characterizes as emblematic of settler sexualities. This builds on the work she's been doing in a blog written under an alter ego called The Critical Polyamorist. Through this work, she founded a University of Alberta arts-based research lab and co-produces the sexy storytelling show, TB Confessions, sparked by the popular Austin, Texas show, Bedpost Confessions. She's also active on Twitter and is a role model to many of us as an indigenous researcher, public scholar, and feminist scholar. Welcome, Dr. Kim Talbert. Thank you for inviting me. We're so <laughs> glad you're here. Would you take a moment just to introduce yourself as you would to a large group of people? Uh, I usually let others introduce me, and then I have to correct the <laughs> name of my tribe. So I'm a citizen of the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate in what is now South Dakota, slightly North Dakota. But I grew up in Flandreau, South Dakota, which is another um, reservation where everybody's related between Sisseton and Flandreau. They're both on the eastern side of the state of South Dakota. And I also grew up partly in the Twin Cities, um, which is Dakota homelands, as well as Anishinaabe homelands. And so we have always kind of migrated back and forth between the reservations in South Dakota and St. Paul in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So this podcast is called All My Relations, and we are really interested in uncovering our relationship-based identities and our relationship with one another, our relationship with land, our relationship with water. And before we dive into anything else, would you relate to that subject for a moment, especially given wh- where you're from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Um I feel like I grew up uh, hearing more, um, you should act in a good way or you should act appropriately. Um, And that was often getting at um, that everybody, like if you were at a powwow or at a community meeting or something, everybody knew who my grandparents and great grandparents were. And so we would be an embarrassment to them if we didn't act appropriately, right? And I think, so that was kind of more the emphasis growing up. And then I think... um, as I kind of encountered a lot of the writing of, of uh, Ocheti Shakawin people um, around this idea, it, it definitely did branch out more into this idea of being in good relation. And I was able to relate that, how you relate with other humans, but also other than humans, back to how I was told to try and reflect well upon my extended family, the Tioshbae, but also the, the Oyate or the tribe or the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I do relate, yes. And then, of course, I brought this really forward into my own work and in ways that are in conversation with um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous academic writing um, about being in good relation. And I've written elsewhere. I actually think we're in a really great time in the academy in some ways. We're not in a great time in terms of the restructuring of the academy, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the kind of intellectual work that I find non-Indigenous people doing uh, to try and recover a language for talking about their relationships with what they consider inanimate mm-hmm. uh, objects or other non-human organisms. So I feel like there's a conversation that's possible now where indigenous people can, I think, really infuse that with a lot of sophistication. So we're going to start the conversation by talking about DNA, since that is uh, something that is very big in the media right now yeah. with the conversations around um, Elizabeth Warren and the continuing conversations around these ancestry DNA tests. Um, but before we dive into that, I would really be curious to hear kind of the origin story of how you came to this work, where the interest <laughs> came from, yeah. um, how you got involved with this in the first place. Because when you started this a long time ago, these conversations weren't 
really happening on this level? No. Um, yeah, so I first encountered the politics of identity and race around the mapping of the human genome back in 2000. Mm. So I um, was working as an environmental policy specialist. I had worked throughout the 90s uh, for the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, for the Council of Energy Resource Tribes, uh, as a contractor to tribal governments. And then I was doing a contract with Department of Energy in 2000. And um, I was working for an indigenous research organization in Denver that had had a lot of grants, and we had done a lot of work to do tribal involvement in the management or cleanup of the nuclear weapons complex. So most of my work in the 90s was around the intersections of nuclear weapons development, environmental contamination, and the cultural resources that indigenous peoples had in and around those nuclear reservations. So DOE suddenly starts funding uh, tribal involvement in the conversations around mapping the human genome, kind of strange, but they were at that point. They were converting a lot of their scientific kind of resources over to this kind mm-hmm. of hot new scientific topic. Um, and we got a big grant to, to host some conversations with tribal representatives uh, throughout Indian country. And it became very clear to me there was a whole lot of really interesting conversation going on. People worried about things like, well, they might be able to manufacture biological weapons because of our unique genomes. Well, all human beings are genetically related, so that's not really very mm-hmm. as like anyway. But but there were was also a lot of talk uh, that was around very genetically essentialist in the way that blood talk can sometimes be blood essentialist. And I was really, really fascinated, and I knew I had a lot of questions that I wanted to ask and answer, and I immediately knew I wanted to write the, the, the what my dissertation became. Mm-hmm. So I decided at that moment, because I a master's degree in environmental planning. Um, I'm going to go back to graduate school. I'm going to do a PhD just to write this book. And that's what I did. And so I, um, but I didn't know the field of science and technology studies existed. I knew I couldn't go to native studies because I wasn't going to get the mentoring and the science that I needed. So I ended up applying to um, getting into the history of consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz, which um, there, Jim Clifford was there who worked on the politics of indigeneity globally. And I knew Jim's work, but I didn't know Donna Haraway at all. Mm. And and then I, I, when I got there, I realized why they'd accepted me because those two work closely together and she does feminist politics of science and technology. Mm -hmm. So that's how that came about. Wow. Yeah. I've never heard that story before. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> no, and, and I'm an advocate of recruiting graduate students who are coming back to school with a very particular problem yes. they want to solve. I don't think we need to be creating a graduate school academic lifestyle. A- academia is not a lifestyle choice. Mm. You should have a very particular problem you want to solve, and you should bring the university resources to do that. That's not the most popular position, but that's kind of the... That's the attitude I have towards what academia can do for us in Indian country. I think it would create a lot more healthy relationships to grad school, too, for yeah. for Native students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's just start by defining what exactly is Native American DNA. <laughs> it's a settler colonial idea. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's see. Good answer. Yeah, it's, um, you know... It, So in human migrations research, there are uh, scientists who use a combination of ancient DNA, which they're drawing often out of human remains or other kinds of uh, art- articles. You can ancient DNA isn't just only DNA from thousands of years ago. Technically, you use ancient DNA techniques to say get DNA out of menstrual rags from the 19th century, right? Oh, it's wow. any DNA that's hard to get out. Mm. Um, and so, but there are people who use ancient DNA techniques um, to look at the, the the DNA sequences in ancient remains, and then they might also compare them to uh, populations living in the world today. And they're both interested in using uh, DNA markers um, and the frequency at which they occur in different 
different geographies around the world to trace when they think people migrated, populations migrated through particular areas. And of course, they have this the out of Africa narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much a and, and U.S.-based scientists have very much a, an immigration-based narrative. So mm-hmm. they are thinking about the, they basically divide it into four racial groups. Um, so it's not only Native American DNA, you have African DNA, you have Europe, Indo-European DNA, you have uh, Asian DNA, that's what they call it. And then there, of course, are overlaps sometimes between those things. Um, but they, so not only are they looking at human migrations historically, they're looking at how different populations in the world are related to one another genetically. Mm-hmm. And so they can then tell based on mutation rates, which branches branched off different lines and where people went in the world. Mm-hmm. So Native American DNA is just one of those, um, th- these sets of markers that are, are found in high frequency uh, in what are now the Americas in Native American populations that have been sampled. Mm-hmm. But you but have they done like an even net sampling across Native populations in the Americas? No. Um, there's multiple factors. First of all, who gets to define who's Native in order to get right. sampled, right. right? So they are looking for non-admixed Natives, mm-hmm. right? And so they would go into, they have done a sampling actually at Siston Wapton, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about where I'm from, uh, I have a Shine and Arapaho grandfather. We all have multiple tribal lineages, right? This is both pre-contact and post-contact. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not, we are, tribes are not synonymous with genetic populations, but scientists don't know that. So they go in thinking, you know, you know how natives are. Oh, yeah, I'm a full blood. I'm a full, <laughs> oh, you're okay, maybe not. <laughs> but even if you are, there's how many different tribes in your blood, right? Yeah. So, but they don't know any of this stuff. So they're like, oh, I got some full bloods. And then they'll, they'll, they'll take out all the people who say they have a white dad or grandparent. Mm-hmm. So this is how sampling is happening. Scientists who have gone in and done sampling and who have this kind of racial standard racial framework that many Mm -hmm. Americans have on the world go in and sample according to that framework. Um, And so they have called it Native American DNA. And and in your book, when you talk about that, you say that one of the major problems with that is in the origin story, right? Mm -hmm. Because it debunks the origin story if there is. Oh, that that's one thing people are worried about? Yeah. That is actually a... A, a worry I think some people have. I wrote an article in Gene Watch, which is um, the magazine of the Center for Society and Genetics, I think, at Berkeley, about this. Because I do think we as Native people need to do a better job of articulating, but it's it's hard, uh, of articulating the idea that um, we have a truth about how we arose in place as peoples that cannot be contained within a genetic narrative. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to reconcile our origin stories about who we are as people with genetic origin stories. Mm -hmm. But because genetics has such cultural power in a settler colonial society, we are always faced with justifying our knowledges and our definitions and our histories according to the dominant narrative that they set out and frankly most other Americans believe. Mm -hmm. So that's what I try to do in that article, to Mm -hmm. say we don't have to reconcile with them. and um, But neither do we have to necessarily say all migration stories around the world are false. There is 
somewhat of an irreconcilability in those stories. And I see Indigenous genome scientists being able to hold their spiritual, for lack of a better word, understandings and traditions on one hand, and then their science on the other hand, and they just kind of move through the world where they have both of these knowledge systems operating in their lives, but not always in the same place. That's a very Indigenous thing to do, Mm -hmm. right? And And I want us to just be very confident that we can do that. And as you move through life, I mean, I have found ways to 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 talk about these stories in more overlapping ways, but because I spend so much time thinking about it, mm. but we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a complete answer to the yeah, question. Absolutely. So it's a worry that people have, and I think it's an over it's 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 overblown in terms of our own innate. I don't think we need to fear the lack of truth in our origin stories. I think more what we have to fear, and I think a lot of Native people do fear this, is the deployment of genetic origin stories to mediate our rights. And and people are particularly worried about maybe rights to land eventually. Mm. Um, I'm worried about eventually the Office of Federal Acknowledgement maybe using genetic ancestry to determine whether or not somebody is authentically a tribe or not. They already use um, cultural anthropological methods. Why wouldn't they use right. genetic anthropological methods? And that was going to be a question that I had too, is just in terms of, I think the public has a very hard time, uh, the non-Native public mm-hmm. um, has a hard time wrapping their head around why indigenous communities see these tests as inherently dangerous um, or as threats to sovereignty. Um, And I don't know if you could kind of explicate on that for folks of just understanding that these are not kind of a benign, fun thing to learn about your heritage. Yeah, I mean, they're foregrounding a settler colonial definition of indigeneity, Mm -hmm. right? So, and, and I talk about this a lot, that settler colonial definition is focused on lineal genetic ancestry alone. So you often see Americans, well, I have a grandparent who was from Irish, therefore I am Irish, right? Even though they tend to be able to distinguish between the right to Irish citizenship mm-hmm. versus that, but they, th- there's a way in which uh, Native Americans are so racialized, obviously, as other racial groups are in the U.S., but what we have in addition to the, that racialization is we have indigenous peoplehood. And most Americans cannot get their wrap their minds around the fact that we are not simply racialized. You can't opt out of that. I mean, I hear tribal leaders say, well, we're not a race, we're a nation. Well, yes and no, right? You don't right. get to opt out of being racialized. Um, but in addition to that, which we have to live with and which we struggle against as other racialized, mar- marginalized racialized groups do, we do have peoplehood mm-hmm. um, as peoples who are original to this place. And I think our invocation of that, um, I, I'm just going to be frank, I think our invocation of that is a threat to a lot of Americans yes. who are trying to feel comfortable in a stolen land. Uh, and they are appealing to this sort of, uh, ca- Canadians do this too, even more than Americans do, because they're more on about the multiculturalism up there, I think, than Americans are. But wanting to appeal to that as the sort of democratic ideal, as that we all want to be included into the liberal multicultural state, well, that's not always been true of Indigenous people. We mm-hmm. want our peoplehood respected. Mm -hmm. And that is not necessarily always compatible with being included into your liberal multicultural state. Yes. So. Drop the mic. Did I get off on it? Drop the mic. I might have gotten off topic, though. No. No, it's it's perfect. I just I just want to acknowledge this line that you wrote in the introduction of your book. You said that faith in the origins gets operationalized as molecular origins. And I'm wondering if you can talk about while you were doing this research, if your origin stories or if your faith was impacted in any, in any way. Um, if, if it felt challenged, did it feel? No, no. I because I and I'm really grateful actually for how I grew up. Um, and I think I was uh, saying this to somebody last night. 
Um, I grew up in a Dakota community that, um, fortunately, <laughs> the missionaries that got a hold of us were these kind of more syncretic Presbyterians. Um, so I grew up going to church, and the first Presbyterian church in South Dakota uh, is on my reservation where I grew up, and it's in Dakota language, the hymns, the sermons. We have Dakota ministers. One of my good childhood friends is a minister, a Dakota minister. Uh, our, some of our ministers Sundance, and they are ministers, and that's the kind of world I grew up in. So it was, we were, it was compatible, and you kind of chose whether you wanted to go to ceremony or church. Some people do both. So no, growing up in that kind of syncretic world, I had no issue, and I was taught there are multiple ways to the creator. Um, what was strengthened was not my religious faith, quote unquote, but my faith in the the good way of being in the world of my ancestors and how much they struggled to try and accommodate um, newcomers while also maintaining their their own worldview and way of life. And they struggled really hard. And you see then what happens in 1862 when Little Crow, my four greats grandfather, is drugged reluctantly in as a leader to the, the Dakota War against settlers at that time in what became Minnesota or what was becoming Minnesota. Um, so I would say my faith in who we are as a people was strengthened. Um, we have a very complicated understanding of how to live with seemingly irreconcilable knowledges and life ways. And, and uh, we, I feel like we, we have been a very non-evangelizing culture. And that is not true of settler colonial culture. They right. want to shove every single thing down your throat. You know, you either die or you get on board with what they're doing. There's mm-hmm. no other choice. And our people were just smarter than that and more good hearted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just, I became more of a show called Daco to Chauvinist. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm really interested in having you talk about really and describe blood, blood politics. And also, if while you're talking about that, you can talk about the notion of purity. You know, I, th- I want people to be careful not to conflate blood with genes. Um, I see people going back and forth between, you know, uh, well, that's genetically essentialist when they're talking about blood quantum. Blood quantum is not genetically essentialist. Blood quantum is about fractions on paper. Mm-hmm. It's not about the physiological substance. There's no examination of blood going on. We mm-hmm. all know how does blood quantum work. It's fractions on paper, right, that get negotiated visually or, you know, whatever the local politics are of people looking at people and deciding what their race or breed was or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, I do write about that in the book where we need to attend very carefully to what the actual histories were in particular places when blood quantum fractions were put to paper, when they were assessed, how they're entangled with the uh, breakup of the collective indigenous land-based and used very much um, in concert with uh, the rise of private property, right? So there are very particular histories. Uh, Alexander Harmon has a book on this here in the Pacific Northwest, right, about how, how blood quantum was worked out here. Mm-hmm. I also would say, I mean, and I, I wish I want us to move past blood quantum and have other ways of doing tribal citizenship. But blood as a symbol is a powerful symbol across cultures and time. I do not accept that it was simply imposed as an idea onto indigenous people. I think that there was some agency that we had in reckoning with that, those symbolic blood ideas. And I still think there's agency. So mm-hmm. we see in tribes all across the country, this is why we have referendums. This is why we're always changing our, our, our blood rules, right? And you see in tribes increasingly in, in the last 25 years, 
behaviors moving towards lineal descent, away from blood quantum mm-hmm. rules. You see them moving from total Indian blood to now having to have a trace to the base role. That so in in my tribe, for example, they still use one quarter total Indian blood, but um, that's total. They'll they'll mm-hmm. consider all of the lineages that I have in multiple tribes. They just want to trace to the base role. It's very complicated, right? Yeah. And so um, Kirsty Gover, who's uh, I think she's from New Zealand, wrote a book on. Uh, uh, she's a legal scholar, wrote a book uh, surveying over 300 tribal constitutions and the sort of shifts in enrollment policies over the 20th century and has shown that tribes are actually, I think, moving away from this racialized idea towards these what she calls uh, tribal genealogical ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, that's still inflecting dominant racial ideas, but there is agency happening as tribes right. attempt to tweak that. So, yes, we need to keep speaking against um blood quantum and blood politics as they work out, uh, as they are worked out. But I think we are making uh, moves away from that. Um, But I also think it is a little naive to think we can just, quote unquote, go back to traditional ways of doing inclusion. We don't live within... We do have our traditional kinship networks, but that those are overlapping now with the with the federally recognized tribe or whatever right. other forms of recognized tribes that we have. And again, you don't simply get to opt out of that colonial structure. We are we are kind of hemmed in and working and resisting within the edifice of that colonial structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Is that an adequate answer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I actually really wanted you to say that out loud about about tribes and and the way that we connect to um, that there was some agency in the in the blood yeah. definition, but then it's but it's also very complicated. And so, how does that play into our genetic memory or the conversation where we say it's in the blood? Um, and yeah, what are and the ways that we can talk about our connection to our ancestors that doesn't? Well, I was just going to say even so in the. Um, in this space, all many of the guests that we've had in here, when we're talking about these cultural practices or understandings of our relationships to land, these metaphors that we use of like, it's in our blood, or now it's shifting, and you talk about this much more to, it's in our DNA, mm-hmm. it's in our genetic memory. And when we know that there's so many challenges around using those as identifiers of uh, identity and culture, mm-hmm. What do you think about those conversations and that language, and what are ways that we can talk about those relationships yeah. without drawing upon these biological fallacies? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think actually some indigenous ethnographer needs to go interview people and figure out what they mean, what what do right. they think is happening in our blood and DNA. Right. I think that's an interesting ethnographic project. Maybe, I'm not going to do that. it, but I think somebody <laughs> should do it. So project be- idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think people mean different things, right? We don't know what people mean, but I do, I have to say, I just heard some native person on a news clip this last week talk about something being in their DNA, and I'm like, ah, stop. First of all, it's just a cliche. I don't like cliches. You mm-hmm. should come up with the more original way to say something. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> but, you know, I don't purport to know what they mean. I think it's just an, e- it's an easy thing to say. Um, I, I don't talk like that, though. And the, the, the idea of blood memory is really interesting. I, I wonder what people mean. Scott Mamaday mm-hmm. is maybe one of the first people credited with yeah. publishing that, that term, right? I don't know what he means. You know, I, I hear it a lot now, though. And, I, oh, go ahead. 
I, I was going to say, and now there's this movement into the conversations around epigenetics and like yeah. then that gets conflated in these conversations too. And yeah, and the epigenetic stuff is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So we might do a summer internship for indigenous peoples and genomics around intergenerational trauma. And mm-hmm. then we would have an epigenetics component to that. I think that is a really interesting conversation to have. That might be a good use of the term blood memory, mm-hmm. right? But what, what, what I want us to recognize is that there is an interplay here to get back to the relationality. And this is what makes what should make our philosophizing on these issues different than settler philosophizing Mm. in part Um, there are relationships between human relatives and our other than human relatives and so that comes into play in epigenetics the environment quote unquote actually can change your genome right Uh, and and that environment includes historical trauma from war and colonization and things like that. So it is not a bi- it is not a biologically essentialist thing to say in fact there are biological inputs to race now because race is something that is also shaped by physical trauma to your body mm-hmm. and to populations and it can change it can change your genetics. So I'm r- working with a group of um indigenous and non-indigenous scientists and thinkers who are really putting forward this biosocial notion of race, biosocial mm. notion of populations and bodies. Um, and I think that is kind of compatible with being thinking about being in good relation and attending to us having multiple relations where multiple relations have agency. So like microorganisms have effects on your bodies, right? You know, the environment has effects on your bodies. The climate has an effect. So according agency to those non-human entities helps us kind of reconfigure the way that we're thinking about ourselves as humans. I think I'm getting off track again. No. (laughs) That's perfect. I'm really interested in the ways that people can use your research um, and what you've been talking about and reform policy in our tribal communities. You know, and what does that look like? How do we, how do we inspire the next wave of thought in our own communities to be more inclusive. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like probably tribes are going to take up Native American DNA. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know the degree to that where my academic work has translated into the way that they use DNA testing. Uh, They're not using the kind of DNA tests that I largely talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're irrelevant. You know, genetic ancestry testing that finds some some unnamed ancestor six to ten generations ago is not relevant when you're trying to show that you are descended from somebody on the base rolls. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's got a name, right? Um, So so it's just... it's not relevant. That's largely what I what I talk about. I do try to educate the public that there is a big difference between the DNA tests that tribal governments use and the DNA tests that mm-hmm. are being sold like to people like Elizabeth Warren, because most people don't understand. There, I've had a lot of blowback on Twitter. Oh, you're being critical of Elizabeth Warren's DNA test, but you guys use DNA. I'm like, yeah, not the same DNA no. test. You know, it's not even remotely the same. When I talk to different tribes around the country about this, that always comes up is Mm -hmm. that we don't have the infrastructure to deal with the backlash of DNA testing. And it's people coming with these genetic ancestry tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just got asked by a reporter, do I have data on this? And I said, I have con- off-the-record conversations at tribal enrollment conferences and people mm-hmm. I meet out in public because tribal enrollment's confidential. And you can I can give you some contacts, but they may not talk to you right. about it. But what I hear word on the street is we've been being inundated since about 2003 with these, with these genetic ancestry tests that have nothing to do with our particular tribe. And these are these know-nothing Americans who think that to be Native American is just being a race. And I can just go around and I, I mean, I read this uh, reporter reported on somebody 
somebody in the Pacific Northwest who took a genetic ancestry test, found out he had some like low percentage of Native American ancestry, so just randomly sent out applications to like five tribes in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> no, like, it's true. It's yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like that shows you like knows nothing, right? It's a thing. It's a real thing. And so I reached out to about seven different tribal enrollment offices uh-huh. for this segment. Uh-huh. And each one of the enrollment officers who I'm friends with said to me, well, Matika, obviously we can't go on record about right. that, but we right. will get you some data and you can talk with our publicist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that works. I'll, I'll take it. You yeah, know? no, this, it's, it's going to be really hard because mm-hmm. they're not, they're the ones with the data and they can't be public about it. Yeah. And I, I think it points to the larger danger of a lot of this is um the fundamental misunderstanding is, like by settlers of indigenous identity mm-hmm. as you were saying but also when in the last week or two when we've been talking about Elizabeth Warren on Twitter I know other native folks who are in roles where they are in student services at universities or uh, scholarship officers or mm-hmm. whatever it is they started telling all those stories just mm-hmm. like enrollment of the kids coming in with the DNA tests to look for what they get or the services that they can access And I know um, I used to work in admissions at a college, Mm -hmm. and um, we actually would send a heritage form to students who checked the Native American box because it's about citizenship and it's not just the racial category. And I would get students who would send back the, the printout from their DNA test as proof of them checking that box. And I know. And it's terrifying because I know many other schools are not doing that secondary level of asking for additional information. That's exactly the kind of strategy we need. Yeah. And it's um, I think it's just uh, I think about all of the ways that settler colonialism is successful in trying to erase indigenous presence Mm -hmm. and that our bodies and our. Uh, families and our ancestry is like this next avenue of just complete erasure of indigenous peoples. Um, And so to me, these DNA tests, I think they're like, on one level, they're funny. Like we can sort of be like those poor white folks who are looking for something. And it's sad that they don't have any connection to their people. But on the other hand, I think of these actual tangible ways that it can really wreak havoc in our communities when we're already struggling so much for just some shred Mm -hmm. of visibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which kind of brings me to my next question, (laughs) (laughs) which is if you can talk about the ways your tribe or your community or yourself perhaps has been DNA profiled and how has that reconfigured your concept of a tribe? Um, Well, my, so the tribe that I'm presently enrolled in, I used to be enrolled Shine Arapaho, but I switched because I never, Oklahoma's kind of strange to me. (laughs) But but I really but yeah but no I look like tall bears and when I go down there it's kind of like being an adoptee because I'm like oh my god I I look just like you all but they're culturally so different from Mm -hmm, Sioux people mm -hmm. like it's it's really it's it's cool anyway so up in Siston though um, we have um, ten about about ten thousand tribal members I think half are on reservation half off and. We, of course, will use on a case-by-case basis a DNA parentage test, as I think probably all tribes now do. Um, And that's usually, say, you've got a a child who you need to get on the rolls, and uh, it's usually paternity that's in question, and you need the father's, the bio dad's uh, tribal enrollment documents to enroll the child, you'll go do a paternity test. But we will also do a signed affidavit by three relatives from his family if they Mm. claim that child. And there are other tribes that do that as well. That's a great alternative to DNA testing. It's it's invoking a more traditional traditional form of kinship. 
Um, so we don't have and but also we are a very rural reservation. Um, we're not really close to any major urban area. So our casinos are profitable enough. We've got three where the, the profits feed back into tribal programming. I think the elderly get a lot of benefits, but we don't do per caps per mm-hmm. se. So we don't have per caps sir. you do that. You're going to have all kinds of enrollment problems, and DNA is going to play a part in that, right? This, this across-the-board DNA testing that some tribes have done, they, that, that is one problem. If you take do the DNA parentage test um, and you go in and you test all tribal members, you, if you go into any room and you parentage test people, you could come up to 10% misattributed paternity. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be doing that in, a, in, your, in your community because you're going to disenfranchise people. You're going to open up old family stories that people didn't know about. So mm. that, I think that is a really, really inappropriate thing to do, but, mm. but people do it where there's economic benefits to be had. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for saying that out loud. Yeah. I think that's really useful for our communities. Yeah. Um, and it's up to our communities to decide the alternative. Right. And there, but there are quite, there are quite a few that will do these affidavits, but but again, I, you know, if when there's economic incentives, it's really hard, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I've never been on tribal council, and I never would be, I'm sure it's really hard to hold off the people who want to do uh, get really, really strict about the roles, right when there's money at stake. Well, in fact, tomorrow, we're doing a segment talking with the attorney who has represented several tribes, uh, and people who have been disenrolled, yeah, based off of blood quantum enrolls. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, there are very it is really happening mm-hmm. around our communities and this is one way that it's happening. Yeah. And so it's really powerful and really meaningful to have you oh. have done this research and this work in our communities. And I'm grateful for it. Oh, thank you. Well, I was going to say something else too. One of the things I think that will really help us is not necessarily me as a social scientist writing a book that's critical of DNA testing, but the, the, the training that we're doing of indigenous genome scientists now. Yes. So I work with indigenous genome scientists, non-indigenous genome scientists who get it. And we've got the Summer Institute for Indigenous Peoples and Genomics that has expanded from the U.S. to New Zealand and is now in Canada. Australia is probably going to come on board. But we've got these young indigenous genome scientists who are, I think, we need to train scientific advisors in our own communities. We cannot rely on non-indigenous people to be giving us this science because they don't understand how to apply it. They don't right. understand federal Indian policy. They don't understand tribal ways of doing kinship. Those are really important forms of knowledges that you have to understand if you're going to apply DNA in a way that is um, helping support tribal sovereignty rather than violating it. Mm. So that's, for me, what's most exciting about my work and the collaborative work I've done with others. And in doing that research, I met all of these young genome scientists that have now graduated and are taking up faculty and postdoc positions. And they're taking leadership globally and reconfiguring uh, genomics to be more ethical uh, as it's kind of uh, intersecting with tribal populations. Funding for this season of the All My Relations podcast comes from the Emergent Fund and the Women's Donor Network. We'd like to thank the Tacoma Art Museum for all of their support, as well as our new patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support the editing costs for our future episodes, you can send us a donation on PayPal or become a monthly contributor on Patreon. Both links are on our webpage, which is allmyrelationspodcast.com. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the Elizabeth Warren. I was going to say storm. Can I say storm? The Elizabeth Warren <laughs> shit storm. Um, or fart storm. Fart storm. <laughs> I just got this like mental like thought of like going through a fart storm. Anyways, <laughs> that is, I don't, I don't think they're both Kinda bad. Kind of like the, the cannabis clouds on the streets of Toronto. <laughs>
that was last week. <laughs> okay, so the Elizabeth Warren fart storm. Um, but in terms of Native folks have been talking about Elizabeth Warren's heritage and conversations around it since her first campaign in 2012. I was at Harvard during the time I got interviewed on the news. I was like a first year grad student. I got interviewed on the news um, about it. And uh, the conversations have been ongoing. And as soon as she released her DNA results with that video that has all kinds of problems in terms of the content, um, the response was immediate from Native peoples that this was not something she should have done and that this was harmful. And I think a lot of Democrats or people who consider themselves liberal were very surprised by that kind of really intense response from Native people. And then in the meantime, um, I know you got inundated with questions from the media um, and from other folks on Twitter and everything. And this is a conversation you've been having since like 2005 around these genetics. So I would just love to hear your kind of quick take on this because I know we've belabored it a lot. Um, And then also how you responded to all of this media attention. Uh, well, I woke up, was it Tuesday? Was it a Tuesday morning when I the think story so. broke? Tuesday, yeah. I woke up and I get to my computer about 6.45 and I think I had an email from a reporter at Indian Country Today. And I went, oh, more Elizabeth Warren. I didn't stop thinking about it all these years. And I wrote him a big, long email. And um, then when I got done writing that and sent it off, I had about 15 more <laughs> reporter emails. And then by noon, I had 15 more. You know, I probably had 50, 60 emails oh by the end of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So I turned what I had written to him into a press release after he got his story up, um, which really then I was able to just post and deal mm-hmm. with because I couldn't respond to all of those reporters. So um, I hadn't watched the video. I guess the initial um, news that morning was in response to the video she had released. And I hadn't watched it. So I was basing my response just off my engagement with this issue around her since 2012 mm-hmm. and then my engagement around DNA since 2005. So to me, this is an old story. Right. Um, I don't know why, how that for non-natives, it's like a new news blip, mm-hmm. right? So my my response was what it what it has been all along, which is that, first of all, I was asked by reporters in the last few months, should she do a DNA test? And I said, no, I don't see what the point would be. It's not going to change anybody's mind. You're still going to have Trump calling her Pocahontas and all his hater minions. Um, Indigenous people are still going to say that's got nothing to do with being uh, Native by our definition. And all the non-Native Warren supporters are going to say, see, she wasn't lying. I mean, nobody's position is going to change. And meanwhile, it's... um, it's not really good for Native people in that it reinforces this racialized idea of what it is to be Native and seems very lacking in understanding of tribal citizenship. Now, the response is always, well, she made she makes a distinction between tribal citizenship and Native American ancestry. Well, not really. No. First of all, she didn't do that until she was called on it. She didn't really have an understanding of that in and of herself. Secondly, It doesn't matter if she says it's not the same as being a tribal citizen. The vast majority of Americans don't care or know anything about tribal citizenship. What what sticks in their mind is Native American ancestry is proof that you have some right to claim to be Native American in some way. And it doesn't matter how much we clarify how problematic it is. And I have clarified this with a incredible amount of detail in multiple media interviews. And still, I get this like automaton response from... Warren Twitter. That should be a hashtag, Warren Twitter. But she said she wasn't a tribal citizen. She's only claiming ancestry. That's her right. 
And my response is, uh, gee, I did 10 media interviews today where I said, in individ- you don't have an individual right here. You know, there's a difference between these kinds of individual claims and our definitions that are forged in collectivity. There's a fundamental difference in definition here. And, and what you're doing by asserting with all of your cultural power, um, her right to claim this is basically saying that that definition, in fact, does matter more than our definition. Right. You know, and there is no real engagement with our definitions and our critiques. There has been pretty much nothing but defensiveness. Mm. So, well, I have had, actually, I have had some emails from a few people who heard my NPR interview last week who said, okay, I learned something. I've gotten a few of those. That's oh, great. That that's is heartening. Yeah, no, I've gotten a few. Yeah, it's been good. And I've gotten a few tweets, but I would say um, I've mostly gotten trolled on Twitter on this issue. And you had, the day that it all hit, you had tweeted out something. I was getting so stressed out because I was getting an equal number of press contacts. Um, and I don't consider myself any sort of expert in the DNA side yeah. of things. I can talk about being a Cherokee person and yeah. what that means in citizenship. And so I was very, <laughs> I was very stressed out. And you put up a tweet and you just said, having to respond to settler infighting takes up too much of indigenous people's time. <laughs> and I was like, Yes, <laughs> it does. I don't have to sit here on Twitter on day all day. Like these people will have no right to my time. Like Kim has said this so many different ways, so many different times. I have 25 tweet threads about this, mm-hmm. and so I just was reposting things that we've already been saying for yeah. decades. Or you get these appeals, well, educate me. I want to learn. What, since when did I become your genetics and identity 101 tutor for free? Like, I got all kinds of emails, you know, just big, long diatribes from, from you know, white women Warren supporters. And then and then I got called mean. I'm like, yeah, uh, me I'm too. supposed to s- sit here all day and tutor you for free and do it with a smile on my face. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not being mean. I'm just, I got things to do. Right. And, um... And so I also do a lot of like public talks where I'm in these spaces. Matika does too. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but I almost every talk I do will get someone who comes up to me and says like, I've taken a DNA test. I've found out that I'm Native American and I would like to like connect more or like give some question of like, what do I do now? Um, And I don't know if either of you have good answers for that because I am (laughs) too nice of a person and I often just fudge around and say, that's nice. I actually have a template email for that that my assistant has. Really? What does it say? I can't. It just says, thank you so much for reaching out. We do believe that we would like to strengthen our nations by having strong allies and advocates for our indigenous communities. I recommend uh, connecting with the local indigenous community and finding a way to give back and be of service. Oh, that's a good email. And so beyond that, I, I am not able to help you connect with your with your community in any way because I'm full to that capacity. But I have about four that my folder that has that it has about 4,800 emails in it right now. Just one. I save those emails too, actually under DNA emails from the public. I should count them. I I get big sob stories from people and long, mm -hmm, really, really long. And some of them are really heartbreaking and some of them. And so that's the hard thing that I have with these conversations is that, um, I think because it's been so dominated by settler voices and not mm-hmm. indigenous voices, we know that there are real stories of disconnection mm-hmm. in our communities. I and hardly get any of those emails. 
of the real ones. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> and I and if of course, if I get somebody who said I was adopted by a yeah. white family, and I know that I'm First Nations, of course, I would I, I write them a response yeah. and, and try to give them some resources about where to go and, and say, well, it depends on you have to know the biological parents. If you don't know the biological parent, or have an idea of who the family is, there's not going to be any way to mm-hmm. get proof and connect. You can't do a Native American DNA test. Yeah. You have to do a parentage test or a, you know, a sibling test. But yeah, I probably I would say 1% of the emails or less that I get are that it's it's these other things. It's mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren type people. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't it's probably because I'm very public about my story of like reconnecting with my community and you get that more. I get those. I get a lot of college students or high school students mm-hmm. who have grown up away and feel disconnected. And oh, then yeah. they hear these stories of people saying like, well, it's not just your ancestry. Like mm-hmm. it needs to be who claims you. It needs to be what community you're connected to. And they're like, I didn't choose where I grew up and I really want to connect and I don't know how to do that. And I feel like I'm not allowed to. So I have a lot of conversations with young people about how. Mm -hmm. these settler conversations are not your conversations like these are different understandings of what it means to be an indigenous person Mm -hmm. and you're fine (laughs) and you can you can start that journey and it's okay of reconnection yeah Yeah. Um, and that's different than someone who is taking a dna test to figure it out and maybe has an ancestor 10 generations ago right where they don't know where from in the americas Mm -hmm. yeah that's different I, I get this question a lot and I just I they're not the same story. They're mm. not even remotely the same story. I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about research as an indigenous person. Mm. Um and one of the things that as an early career scholar I've been um in such admiration of your work and the ways that you think about the politics of actual research. And so I know um with Native American DNA, you made specific choices about who you were going to talk to for the book and who you weren't going to talk to. And I was wondering if you could tell us about those decisions and what that meant for you as a researcher in that space. Well, you know, I, it's funny that I didn't initially realize that I should do this, but it was when I went home and I had had my IRBs approved, and I realized I didn't want to bring out an informed consent form and push it across the table at the cafe and have some you know, el- older person or anybody in my community talk to me about their perspectives on genetics. Mm-hmm. It just was very uncomfortable. And you know what people do at home? If you're sitting around the cafe and somebody gets in storytelling mode, they might not be in storytelling mode in 20 minutes, and they're right. not going to be in storytelling mode on command, you know, and it's the minute I give them that form, it's going to, they're going to stop, not because they don't, they want to keep things secret, but because it just changes the whole dynamic, right? And I, I just never was able to do that. I didn't want to interrupt my time at home and the great stories people were telling. And then I went, wait a minute, I've been reading, you know, Vine Deloria Jr.'s critiques of anthropology and Laura Nader's feminist critiques of anthropology. And she wrote this article around the time Vine was published, Custer Died for Your Sins. She wrote a really important article called Up the Anthropologist, right, where she talked about the need to, why are we always researching the poor, exploited, marginalized populations? Let's research those in power. And this is during the Vietnam War. And I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. Who cares what Dakota people think about genetics? We'll figure that out eventually. The people giving us the problems are non-Native scientists. Mm -hmm. What do they think about genetics? And I went, oh, so this gets me out of the predicament of not wanting to interview at home. And it's a really important decolonial performative move. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's what I decided to do in the book. Yeah. And it's really great to go out to genetics meetings and have people say they assume because I'm a Native studies scholar, I study Natives. I'm like, no, I study you. Because you're yes. a danger to indigenous <laughs> sovereignty. And they don't, they don't know what to do with it. I love that. But I mean, they can't say anything because no. they're out there trying to get in Indian blood. 
you know, in their test tubes or whatever. They don't use those anymore, but (laughs) they're all trying to draw blood. (laughs) So... Um, and you have this beautiful article that I quote all the time, the um, article about standing with rather than necessarily giving back. Yeah. And I think that is such a powerful reframing um, in terms of I, again, work with Native high school and college students. And a lot of the conversations in reasons why Native students are going to higher ed is this idea about giving back. And I feel like it puts a really undue pressure on Native students. And they think about giving back in very specific ways about mm-hmm. like being in your community, yeah. about serving your community um and so having your reframing of this idea of standing with rather than giving back i think is really powerful um and was wondering if you could talk about that as well well so that little article took a long time to write i think it's only five pages and it took me about 40 hours to draft it in the first place but you know i um i was reading um an article by nefertiti that's around about a filipina film big famous film star and Nefertiti was one of our professors at UC Santa Cruz. I didn't work with her and wasn't influenced by her work at all until much later when I actually just went back and for some reason read this particular article mm-hmm. where she p- pulls out a Filipino concept, which I'm probably, I, I did speak Indonesian, but so maybe it's Sampalataya. Um, and that's, that's what that means. And it just really resonated with mm-hmm. me. And so it was a it was a such a concise idea that enabled me to think about how I actually am already doing that in the kind of indigenous planning work I had done and in my more community based research. So yeah, I have to credit Nefertiti Tadiar for for um, opening that analytical frame up for me or helping me explain what mm-hmm. I knew, but in more theoretically nuanced language. Um, but yeah, it was really hard to write because um, we don't, it's not a framework that's, that's operative normally in ethnography or academic research. And there's a lot of angst that happens in the social sciences about how do I, how, how do I do inside ethnography? Am I really an insider? You know, a lot of people being angsty over their identity, which I find not very, not a very good use of one's time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that little idea really, but it's a big idea. It really helped me crystallize, um, my refusal to be too preoccupied with my own identity, but because it's not identity, it's about who I'm relating with. And I don't like the word identity. And I want us to get away from using it whenever we can. Mm. What are we talking about when we're using that much like when we use the word sexuality? What are we talking about? I'm not talking about identity. I'm talking about my relations. Mm. I'm not talking about just who I am as an individual. And that's, again, the difference between us and settler colonial thinking about what it is to be native. You know, it's, it's it's really about how yeah i'll stop there cuz i think i've said what i have to say kim i wanted to bring us back to this idea that you mentioned earlier of us um as indigenous folks needing to Uh, kind of expand the ways that we think about our conversations around our origin stories or around that this is our land and um, how we expand the relationality with settlers and other folks who are on um, our land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have a paper that's in press called um, American Dreaming is Indigenous Elimination. Mm. Um, It's the elimination of of a lot of our non-human relatives too, actually. I may have to change the, the title a bit. Um, and in that paper, I talk about the fact that the the American dream, whether it's uh, a right wing xenophobic version of that or whether it's a liberal, quote unquote, progressive form of it, 
it's based on indigenous genocide. Mm-hmm. And that is not the answer for and it's clearly not been the answer. I mean, you know, look at look at what the American dream has got us. It's based upon a human non human hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, so non human animals are considered lesser life forms, the word animal is used to degrade other humans, mm-hmm. animal should not be an insult. But it's it's an insult, right? Uh, it's the whole term dehumanize. Mm. That's a problematic idea too. You're right. It's very problematic because the, it puts the human at the pinnacle, and among humans, straight white men are yeah. at the pinnacle. So, so racism used to be a, race was originally species before it became just mm-hmm. about humans. So, racism and speciesism are intimately interconnected in the history of science and of Western European thinking. So, I think um, the American dream has all of that that hierarchy of life within it. It's fundamental. It cannot be recuperated. So we need another narrative to live by. And I was just at a an event at the performance space in New York where um, uh, uh, an Italian filmmaker who made a film about uh, Donna Haraway, uh, mm-hmm. Storytelling for Earthly Survival, I think, he screened the film. And then Donna Skyped in from Santa Cruz and I gave a talk about this book that we're in together, Making Kin, Not Population. And we were, it became very, very clear to me. I, I, I kind of knew Donna and I were on a similar project these days, but it became very clear in that, that what I'm trying, she, she has this film storytelling for earthly survival. I really, really believe we need to change the dominant narrative according to which we live by this. Mm-hmm. The American dream is destroying the planet. It is environmentally, economically, and emotionally unsustainable. And it's built upon a hierarchy of life that includes a hierarchy of race and a hierarchy of men and women and a hierarchy of queer and straight folks and abled people and everything else. So what do we replace it with? We cannot simply do away with it without another guiding narrative. And I think indigenous peoples across cultures have this guiding narrative, which is being in good relation. Mm -hmm. And one does not have to be us to be good kin. And what's happening is you're getting a lot of non-indigenous people wanting to be us instead of doing the work of being in good kinship. Well, it's a lot easier to go take a DNA test and do your genealogy than it is to work to be in good relation with indigenous people. Mm -hmm. That is the challenge in front of them. Mm -hmm. And historically, I've actually learned a lot from some of the Indigenous studies academics in Canada, people like Rob Innes, who have focused on kinship as well as nation. Mm -hmm. And by reading his book, Elder Brother, it was an epiphany for me because then I went back and read some of the historical documents around what my ancestor Little Crow was doing, because he's kind of viewed as this sort of like he was being really pragmatic. He was being too tolerant with settlers. Then these like hot headed young Dakota men went and killed this settler family because Dakota people were starving. The annuities weren't coming from Washington after they were incarcerated in, Mm. you know, a reservation, basically, and they had no right to hunt and they were you know the people were starving so this whole war breaks out and um little crow was viewed as this somewhat politically compromised person because he had cut his hair he went to church he was he still kept his four wives he still wanted to live in his teepee but he was trying to find a way to to kind of um live in ways that were somewhat accommodating but while also maintaining a a dakota worldview and largely dakota kinship structures and uh, because what was what it was becoming very clear to me in looking at that history after reading Rob's book was that he was attempting to make kin out of settlers. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that some of the, the treaties tend to get, I think, interpreted by some indigenous thinkers in Canada more. And I said when I moved up there, that was like a a news flash to me. I don't think about our treaty history as kinship. No. We talk a lot about that as nation to nation yeah. down here. But there's another person in my tribe, tri- uh, Gabrielle Tateyashkanshkan, who also talks about this. Gabby's in my tribal writers group. She talked about the fact that when we look at 1862 and the Dakota War, 
we can't look at it as only whites versus natives. She said there were actually already kinship entanglements at that time. She said, we need to focus on what the big capitalists in the Twin Cities were doing. What was the impetus for that war? So it's not that we don't look at these uh, white supremacist structures that were happening in the 19th century because they were and there was real racial oppression. But there was also already these kinship entanglements. And this was an indigenous effort, I think, to make kin, right? So there there were efforts to draw newcomers in until they stopped becoming kin, because sometimes newcomers did become kin. Right. Mm-hmm. We see this. But then you get these these increased numbers of settlers who are coming in who have no interest in being kin, who just want to appropriate everything. Right. And so I think that that it is about learning how to be not only good relations with indigenous people without trying to be us and usurp everything that's ours. It's also about learning to be better relations with the planet. Uh, and the, there's a lot within that American dream that has to go. Mm. And it's already going. The U.S. is in decline. Yeah. You know, and it's Trump really? is not the reason it's in decline. He wouldn't have gotten elected if the U.S. weren't already in decline. It's an unsustainable worldview. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's I, powerful. It's so dope what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of other indigenous thinkers and some non-indigenous, yeah. right? I've well, really you know, never thought of it that yeah. way. I, I've been I've been teaching. So I'm I've been doing this government training, and part of the government training that I've been I don't even know what to, how to frame this because it's, it takes a very long time to have this conversation. But basically, I frame it through what Thomas King says, where he tells the creation story, right? And he talks about the Anishinaabe creation story and Sky Woman and coming down and being put on a turtle's back and and how you know it's together with that woman and her two children and all of the animals that life in, and Turtle Island is created and how there's this relationship and how the animals were foundational in building the world and and how it was created by a woman giving birth and, and then he goes on to like say, you know, this is the foundation for the way of life of Anishinaabe people. So our creation story shapes the entire world that we live in and then I go on to tell like five or six different creation stories around Indian country and then how that shaped uh, like how the great law and the story of the peacemaker shaped Haudenosaunee democracy. And I talk about it here, how our creation story into transforming creation story in the Northwest shaped our longhouse potlatching economy. Anyway, then I tell the American creation story, right? And I like to say it is an American creation story because the majority of our country is Judeo-Christian and foundationally believe in that idea that we have that men have dominion and i think that's probably one when you boil down christianity i I think that that's the the most damaging effect of christianity is that men have dominion over land animals and women and power and control and so as much as it's the american dream i also think we have to look at religion shaping the american dream and i've been wondering that's why i asked you the question earlier about when you talked about science and faith and faith, you know, I actually there, the, the state, the church and science, uh, have worked in tandem in the colonial project. They war between themselves, but they have more in common than they have different. They're all run by straight white men and they're all about managing everybody else's life for their benefit and within their control. So I don't, you know, when I see scientists, I mean, sure, they have to fight for keeping evolution in the public schools and all that. Sure, that's a, that's a real fight. But they are coming out of the same origin story as the clergy that they're fighting against, right? Which does put um, white men at the top. 
mm-hmm. you know. And my daughter is writing a paper actually on pro- propertyed white men. She's pulling apart some of that U.S. history. I was reading it last night, and she it, she's really saying, you know, no, the U.S. democracy was really created for white men with property. That's really what it's about. And once anybody else gets access, that's not really what they want. We see that, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's yeah. sixteen, right? She's sixteen. Her. Yeah, she's she's yeah, she's. I won't say she's ra- that shouldn't be radical. <laughs> That shouldn't be radical, but in this day and age, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the conclusion of your book, you say the scientist who contributes her intellectual work into the processing and analysis of DNA in the lab in the U.S. legal paradigm has the greater property claim. Oh, yeah. So um, it's really, that is about the idea that only those who develop property have the right to it, right? And so this is where what the genome sciences are inheriting from this kind of colonial pioneer mentality. So the idea that because Native people were viewed as not owning the land, as not developing it um, in a capitalist manner, they were wasting it, basically, and they didn't have a claim to it. This is a lot of the kind of philosophy that is is guiding settler claims to territory in the 19th century. And similarly, in the 20th and 21st century, it's an idea that's guiding uh, some genome scientists claim to our DNA because we're not using it. It's just there in our bodies mm-hmm. and and they need to use it to produce knowledge for the good of all. Well, the good of all never includes us and it's always on our backs. So science and the state doing the same thing in 1850 and 2018 in very fundamental ways. The, the title of this episode is called Can a DNA Test Make Me Native American? Can we get a, an answer on that one? Well, if you want to take sure, Elizabeth yeah. Warren's definition of Native American, sure, I hope we don't come to that. You know, mm-hmm. I hope that our definitions, which are not simply Native American, I mean, that puts us under an umbrella where we communicate with and have relations with one another, right? We can't get out of that racialized structure. But we know as indigenous people within that structure, we have all of these people-specific traditions, languages, territories, and relations that both predate and exist after contact. So by that definition, of course not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Kim has such a big brain and is thinking about such diverse topics, we actually split our conversation into two parts. Our next episode, we're going to talk with her about the other parts of her work that surround her blog, The Critical Polyamorist, and her stage show, which is called TP Confessions. So we'll have some conversations around that and the broader idea around decolonizing sex. You know, you all want to talk about sex with us. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. <laughs> Decolonize sex. Mm-hmm. It's a time machine that you hop into and you go back and have old ways sex. <laughs> okay i'm kidding (laughs) please subscribe rate and comment on itunes we'd love to try and get the pod to the new and noteworthy page and reach all the peoples you can follow the podcast at amr podcast on instagram you can follow me adrian at native approps on instagram and twitter or check out nativeappropriations.com Matika can be found at project underscore 562 on Instagram or at Matika Wilbur on Twitter. Her website is project562.com. 
<laughs> you can follow Kim's fire tweets at Kim Tallbear on Twitter, and her book is Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science. And you should seriously buy it and read it. It is available on the internets where books are sold. Huge thanks to our amazing production team, audio engineer and art director Teo Shantz, producer Brooke Sweeney, and production assistant Juanita Toledo. Amazing episode art by Sierra Sana, who is on Insta at Art by Sierra. We're going to be having amazing video clips coming out too. So huge shout out to our set designers, Tenold Sunberg and Emily Wood, Southside All-Stars where they built the set, our set lighting expert, Jonathan Hauser, our colorist, Tristan Siniuk, and musical assistants from Max Levin and Kyle Scherer. If you have any original music that you'd like to have featured on our future episodes, please email your clips to allmyrelationspodcast at gmail.com. We also set it up now on our website to have this really cool little widget where you can send us a voicemail from your computer, which is super cool. And we're really interested in hearing your thoughts and responses to the podcast or any questions that you might have. So the widget is on the contact us page of allmyrelationspodcast.com. Leave us a message. (laughs) Old school. (laughs) We do have some specific things that we'd probably like people to leave us messages about. Right, Matika? Uh, Some of our next topics include conversations around uh, our indigenous languages. You know, we want to hear your thoughts about that. Are you a language warrior? Are you preserving language? Uh, What was your access like to your own indigenous language? Uh, How do you feel about your ability to speak or not speak your own language? Uh, What are some of the teachings that are held in your language? We're also diving into blood quantum. Uh, Are you enrolled? Are you disenrolled? What is enrollment policy like in your community? And how does that affect your life? And so if you could uh, send us a voicemail around those topics, we would love to hear your thoughts. Oh, my relation.